Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we talk with Manu Kauruga about his new book, Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Manu Kauruga is Assistant Professor of American Studies and affiliated faculty with Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College. His new book, Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad, was published by the University of California Press in 2019 in their American Crossroads series. Empire's Tracks takes some familiar histories of American westward expansion and transcontinental railroad construction and retells them through the often missing contexts of capitalism, finance, and what Kauruga terms a military finance nexus. Viewed as continental imperialism, Kauruga shows how the enterprises of expansion, military conquest, and capitalist enterprise were intertwined and concurrent, and that their continental extension unfolded over colonized territories, not American homelands. By featuring histories of how native peoples and Chinese laborers experienced the transcontinental railroad story, Empire's Tracks expands our view of history. Integrations of global economic networks, political and economic philosophy, and some post-colonial literature and theory offer a powerful set of lenses through which to read old stories anew. Professor Manu Kauruga, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book. I was happy to, to spend quite a bit of time with it. Thanks. I appreciate that. I have, I have kind of an outline of questions I want to go through, and I think th if we can work through all of them, we'll hit most of the large points of your book. From my reading, it seemed that part of your approach was taking a very familiar narrative of you know, the construction of the transcontinental railroads and trying to reorient how we talk about them, the stories we tell in order to tell the story of transcontinental railroads, and in, in many ways place in some correctives of some of the familiar narratives and familiar stories. And one of the most striking is taking the story of transcontinental railroad construction and turning it into a story about continental imperialism, which is a very different lens through which to view these same stories. And I'm curious how you came to this approach. Yeah, so I think I came to this project um, not through an interest in railroads, actually, but through an interest in thinking about imperialism uh, and colonialism. I studied as a student in college, I'd studied um, the historiography of uh, British imperialism in South Asia. So the ways historians have understood 
that era and the power relations at play and the ways that you interpret documents and what you can learn from those documents. So uh, all of this was very interesting to me. And when I began graduate school, I was wanting to apply some of those insights or think about some of those insights in relation to North America and to the place where relation to the to the place where I live. Um, and so that's what initially led me um, to this. Um, to this framework and to these to these questions um, about, you know, thinking about familiar stories, as you said, familiar narratives, um, but trying to approach them from from different lights, from different angles. Um, another aspect uh, that really drove the the book for me is a commitment to the to the idea, the principle of national liberation. I came out of uh, ethnic studies uh, and ethnic studies itself historically had its formative moment in 1968. Um, the way it's remembered is the third world student strike in San Francisco, San Francisco State and UC Berkeley. Um, and these undergraduate students named themselves as third world students. This was in the era of the, the movement against the Vietnam War in the United States. Um, and they drew clear connections between the uh, experiences in their working class communities of color uh, in California and beyond, and uh, the experiences, uh, the demands, uh, the impulses driving decolonization movements in Africa, in Latin America, and in Asia. And so, um, you know, I've, I've been studying this history and I've been studying this field for a long time. And so I also brought that with me to this, to the project and to, um, you know, to, to the questions I wanted to ask about the, the transcontinental railroad. Hmm. Are there other topics, you know, so you had, you had made a decision that you wanted to study something in North America and kind of bringing your, your previous interest and expertise in uh, British India and, and ethnic studies. Were there other similar topics that you, you flirted with or thought that you might apply these, these approaches to? Yeah, actually. So when I began graduate school, I, I thought I was going to, I was planning to write a dissertation on uh, indentured labor migrations from mm. from colonial India uh, to British sugar colonies uh, in the aftermath of the abolition of slavery. Sugar colonies where? In Guyana, in Trinidad, ah. and in Fiji. So in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. You know, there's a through line in Empire's tracks about gender and um, uh the, the relationship between, let's say, gendered relations and imperialism. And so this was also a through line for me in that in that earlier project that I was thinking about on indentured labor migrations, thinking about gender um, in a system of migration that was actually managed by uh, by the British uh, imperial state and the different colonies that were sending and receiving these workers. Mm. And there were questions of race and race at play, race and uh, class and gender. Um, so some of this, there's a bundle of questions, uh, concerns that I think are also in Empire's tracks that um, I was thinking about in that in that other context. But, mm. you know, I switched over to, to this project. All the things we think we're going to do when we go to grad school. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> well, there's a story. There's a story behind this. I started graduate school in 2001 and I was at NYU. And... Um, the maybe third week of graduate school, I was commuting from my parents' house in New Jersey, and the maybe the third week, I think 9/11 happened, and um, so I was, you know, living 
in the place in the communities that I'd grown up in um, and going to school and, uh, you know, studying the field, American studies and thinking about a project. And also at the time, riding trains from my parents' house to New York and experiencing, you know, things on the train, uh, going back, especially late at night. Uh, there were a few times when the train would just stop in the middle of nowhere and stop for a long time. They shut down the power and there was no announcement. And on these trains, there's a lot of uh, immigrants, a lot of South Asian people, a lot of Arab people going home from work, um, whether it's, you know, Wall Street work or whether it's work in, um, in, in restaurants or uh, in stores. So a whole mix of people, a whole range of people on these trains. And this is around this time when we were hearing stories of people's relatives disappearing, um, you know, and eventually what we came to understand is this whole process system of detention that had been put in place mm-hmm. almost immediately. And so these uh, these were things I was living through and experiencing. And it felt to me in that moment that, uh, you know, I was compelled to shift my focus from the sugar colonies and the kinds of questions that that would open up to some other site. And um, the railroad actually, um, you know, early on became a site where I felt like, oh, there's there, there's a lot here for me to learn. There's a lot here for me to think about um, that seem somehow connected to the things that I'm observing as I move through the world. Yeah, I mean, well, now that we hear kind of the the background, I can I, it has me thinking about lots of global connections, and there's a lot of kind of broader global histories this connects to. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. Although I think that your other project may have made for some better um, destination vacations to visit archives. I'm thinking about Fiji and Trinidad. Um, yeah, it may yeah, have been better yeah. archival trips than Wyoming. Um, well, so, you know, I, I like Omaha a lot. Well, let's start, let's kind of start down the list of some of these these ideas, and uh, maybe we'll start with kind of the land and the geography of transcontinental railroad expansion and American expansion, kind of that geography itself. Um, the United States is part of one of its many uh, creation myths um, or creation stories, you know as we talk about continental expansion and this idea of manifest destiny and how it was, it was just written in the stars that the United States was going to expand across the country. And and one of the outcomes of that, that discourse over the last, you know, you know, 100, 150 years is that there starts to be an implied just kind of foundational understanding that, this is American land, that this is inherently uh, uh, America from coast to coast. And part of what your book does is flip that on its head and to stop talking about a continental United States and to start talking about these regions as colonized territory, colonized land. Um, Could you talk, walk us through a little bit of, of that kind of flip in perspective? Yeah, yeah. So I think the railroads are... You know, this, this, their core infrastructure of this process that I'm calling continents of imperialism and where we see foreign land, foreign territory that's, that's occupied by corporations and by the U.S. Army, by railroad corporations and by the U.S. Army working together, um, occupied in order to impose, uh, you know, um, impose, uh, property relations, landed property relations, and imposed forms of, of production. Um, and these sites here, it's um, ultimately it ends up being a large-scale agriculture and ranching. 
Um, but as I said, the railroads are core infrastructure. This, and one of the ways we can see this is through the land grants that U.S. Congress made to the railroad companies. And when I talk about this, uh, I show a slide, uh, and there's many maps uh, that, if anyone's listening, there's many maps you can find where you can find uh, railroad land grants uh, mm. by Congress uh, in North America or in the continental United States to to railroad companies. And you can see it's millions of acres of land that was granted. Some listeners may not know, but part of the way that the railroads fund, funded the, the enterprise was that the U.S. government gave them. In some places, it was alternating, kind of an alternating checkerboard of plots 20 miles out from the railroad. Other places in the Northwest, it was just, in, instead of that, they just took enormous timber reserves. But the idea being that on the back end of railroad construction, the railroads could then sell this land or sell the lumber and and, and pay off the debts they had accrued. Um, but yeah, so the, some of the maps are really mind-boggling. The amount of They're incredible. The, the swaths of land that were were granted out. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you just said, you know, there's a piece to that that I think is really significant um, that I'd like to come back to, um, which is the financial aspect of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we will get to that. Yeah. <laughs> OK. You know, these maps, I, I agree, they're mind boggling. And uh, when you see uh, what we what many of us just think of habitually as the continental United States. Or the homeland, if you think of the language of, for example, homeland security. Mm. Um, and you see, when you look at these maps and you think about them in historical context, it's incredible to think that most of this land was granted by Congress in abrogation of treaties uh, with indigenous nations. So most of this land was actually not, uh, there were no large settlements, towns, or no cities, really. There was no production happening. You know, when you talk about um, you know, lumber industry or mining industries, all of these, you know, really developed in the wake or through or in relationship with the with the develop with the, the construction of these railroads. Um, and so to see in a way, so Congress is granting land that it doesn't that the U.S. government, federal government doesn't fully control that um, citizens of the U.S. are not inhabiting. It's granting this land, uh, which is in foreign, you know, really foreign country to these railroad corporations. And the railroad corporations go through, they raise the money, they build the tracks, they build the, the rails through this land, and they kind of materialize that claim on the land um, through the process of, of, of the railroad construction and maintaining uh, maintaining these lines once they're built. And so there's a, there's a relationship between the state and the corporation here mm-hmm. in kind of settling the continent in claiming this this uh, territory. Well, sometimes we have this picture, right, of like, you know, the intrepid explorer, you know, out there planting the flag or military conquest, you know. But you're telling a story of continental conquest, but through industry. And that that is what really, I think the word used was materialized, kind of in, yes. in on the ground, American uh, claims. Yeah, which um seems like a is this an uncomfortable idea? Do you think for many Americans, uh, less romantic, um, less easy to you know, yeah, yeah, to wax romantic about that it that it's about capitalist enterprise and industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, so Frederick Jackson Turner has the, this historian 
proposed this idea of the, the frontier thesis. And when we talk about a national mythology, that's deeply etched in the sense of, of what the country is. Um, you know, I've, I taught for a few years in West Texas and students would come, this was at a state university there, Texas Tech University, and mm-hmm. students in my classes um, would come to me after class and say, you know, my my grandparents were the first white people who lived, the first generation of white people who lived in a, in their small town. And we'd be studying indigenous history, Comanche history, let's say. And um, it gave them a, um, it gave them a very, a, a very different, as you say, not it punctured some of the romanticism, maybe, of family stories that they heard, which were deeply, um, you know, deeply uh, in- intertwined with their own senses of self and the communities that they came from. And it punctured that in some ways, but I hope in, in useful and productive ways where they came to understand actually the land itself where they had grown up, the lands where they that they considered home. And they, they came to understand the, the history of those lands in a, in a fuller way. Um, so... Yeah, I think, you know, maybe we, we lose some of that romanticism, um, that we've attached to these ideas of the pioneer. Um, but then I think we also gain a clearer understanding of, of, of the place of the land. Um, and I think it, um, you know, in many ways it's, it, it's in, incredible the ways for me, even to this day, I've been, uh, studying this for so long. Um, and it still, still seems so fresh. It speaks to our moment in so many ways. And so maybe what we what we lose, perhaps we gain some things as well. Um, understanding uh, contemporary struggles over infrastructure and um, the relationship between industry and entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, large scale suffering or large geographies of suffering. So this week, for example, there are the, the terrible fires that are, uh, yeah. you know, flaring through California and. Uh, you know, part of the story with what's going on with those fires is uh, corporate malfeasance. It's not just a question of uh, of climate change. It's also, uh, you know, decades, uh, even in some cases, from what I understand, uh, you know, wires and, and electrical infrastructure that should have been replaced a century ago, and it's it's now you know just unable to 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 continue functioning continue operating so there there are connections i think and uh i think maybe puncturing some of that mythology the romanticism um can can give us a more accurate understanding of where we're living and and where by where we live i mean the actual places the land itself and what 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 some of the questions what what you know helping helping us to come up with the questions we need to ask each other to collectively together in order to think about how we can uh, continue living or live better in, on these lands. Yeah, because that's what we're about. We're about asking difficult questions about the past so that we can understand it better, but so that we can then learn how to ask difficult questions about the present. Um, at least that's what that's what motivates me. That's why I'm yes. in the profession. How do you view your role or what strategies do you use then to get the general public to buy into this? Because asking difficult questions about the past or present is uncomfortable. It is sometimes not rewarding. Sometimes it feels more destructive than constructive. Um, I think over the long term of our careers so far, we can see uh, the long-term benefits of going through these difficult processes of, of inquiry, but sometimes the public doesn't. How do you approach that? How do you take this and get the public to see the value in it or get them to kind of walk through it themselves? Part of it is is 
writing. Um, you know, I think a lot and I work a lot on writing, um, trying to write more clearly and, you know, trying to write in a way that I hope is um, compelling, um, not at all condescending. I think the ideas are difficult. They're, they're complicated sets of histories and ideas that I'm trying to work with. Um, uh, but uh, I'm hoping to communicate them, to bring them across in a way that really lives um, and speaks not just historically, but speaks to us now. But there's something about, you know, this isn't just about, you know, willfully going back and uh, cherry picking in order to find versions of history that will satisfy, you know, kind of uh, capricious desires of the present moment. I think uh, it, there's also something about really working hard to find what actually happened um, and to understand, you know, the, the past um, in order to understand better how we got to the present. So one example for this for me, is in the archival work for the book, there's a whole series of conversations that were taking place between uh, people who were running um, the railroad corporation, so overseeing construction, the chief engineers of the Union Pacific Railroad, let's say. And uh, then on the other side, they were having this dialogue with uh, generals, uh, back in Washington, D.C., and then also in the Plains. And both sides were talking to each other about resources from the railroad itself, where the railroad will be building, if the railroad will be available to move troops or war material in certain seasons, and where um, where the railroad would plan to build so that um, the Army could um, um, plan its, its forts, um, its fortifications. And on the flip side, uh, requests from corporate leaders, uh, constru construction leaders, um, asking for military details to uh, to provide security for uh, surveying parties or to provide security for uh, work parties or even to not, not security necessarily, but even to just provide rifles um, and ammunition uh, for working parties in certain areas. And this is a give and take that was going on uh, week by week, month by month, and they were planning together. And in the histories, when you go to the, let's say you go to the library, um, and the way the histories are set up, there's one part of the library, one one shelf, which or one series of shelves, where you'll find the North American Indian histories. There's another series of shelves where you'll find the military histories. And there's a whole other series of shelves where you'll find the corporation histories. And if you look at these books, they tend to read one half of the conversation, one side of the archive. Um, so I think it's actually, um, you know, trying to understand the history in a more accurate sense. Mm -hmm. Also, it's not just being led by the, the you know, by the questions of the moment, um, but trying to underst understand this history more accurately. That leads us to, let's say, read both these sets of archives together and see trace out this dialogue that's going on and find meaning, find, understand something from, from that dialogue, from the give and take between corporate leaders and uh, military leaders. Mm. Yeah, I mean, often it's presented as a story of the military went out first and subdued the land and the peoples, and then industry and settlement came later, kind of as, yeah. as a, as a multi-stage multi process. Um, I think, it, you know, I'm thinking about some of the paintings, you know, Westward, the course of empire. That painting doesn't doesn't have railroads in it, I don't think. Um, but some of the other ones that 
I'm trying to remember the name of one. Is it like American Progress, where there's kind of Lady Liberty floating across the land, and there's some military out front, some buffalo yes. and native peoples running, and then the, behind her is the telegraph and the railroad, right? Yes. But that needs to be collapsed, more that's concurrent happening. So you think you came to that by just trying to understand history on history's terms, and you found a very different story that we just simply haven't haven't articulated correctly. Yes, some of it was just, you know, um, spending time in, in archives and reading outside, let's say, reading outside of the box that I initially came there for and seeing what, could I, what I could find. Some of it is reading across these different subfields of, of history and seeing, oh, these military historians are writing about this one episode that appears in all these railroad histories. But it's the same episode. Something very, yeah, same episode, but they're <laughs> saying something very different about it. So, you know, part of it was uh, reading the, the histories that people have written. Part of it was through the archive. And so, you know, the question you started with about the continental United States, um, understanding this as uh, not not through a framework of, of westward expansion, but understanding it through a framework of continental imperialism, I think is a it's an insight that came to me from doing this, this this research and from studying the history and from trying to understand the patterns, um, why things happened when they did, why companies were organized the way they were, um, why the military had these particular relationships with uh, the corporations, um, the introduction of new military technologies at specific moments, um, why railroads were built in, in, in particular places and how that pattern changed over time. So trying to think about these patterns um, and, you know, based on what I was learning from the histories that have been written, based on what I was learn, learning from the, the archives, um, that's what led me to, you know, to these insights about ideas like continental imperialism. In the book, you use the phrase, uh, the war finance nexus. Is this something different than kind of the military industrial complex that we talk about today? Yes, I think so. Um, so this comes from trying to be precise about imperialism, mm. um, which is a core category for me in the book. And I want to be, you know, precise about it. Uh, you know, everyone's against imperialism. Um, but if you ask them what they're against, um, they may give you many different definitions. What, what exactly it's, you know, they're speaking against. I shouldn't say everybody. Most, most people <laughs> are against imperialism. Um, you know, but, in the fields that I work in, um, in U.S., uh, let's say the history of the American West, U.S. 19th century history, American studies, uh, where I teach, um, imperialism is often now thought of in really subtle ways, complex ways, as a cultural form of dom as a form of cultural domination, or as a cultural phenomenon, or it's understood as a form of ideological um, domination. Um, or, under, or analyze in the realm of ideology, or as or purely political domination, geopolitics. Um, but I wanted to think about imperialism, um, drawing on the work of Lenin and, and W. B. Du Bois, understanding imperialism as the nature of capitalism in certain historical moments, and the ways that both of them write about it is uh, linking war and finance. And so that's where I come to this idea of the war finance nexus. The military industrial complex is, you know, that's that's a concept that Eisenhower mm -hmm. um, first introduced after the Second World War. Um, and this has to do 
again, I mean, I think, I think if we understand the moment when he was named and understand historically what was happening, it has to do with uh, the nature of the U.S. economy after the war and, um, you know, uh, very stern warnings that Eisenhower uh, was giving that went unheeded by political leaders afterwards. But, you know, uh, warnings about imbalances that would open up in the U.S. economy and in the world economy if if the U.S. was to follow or um, yeah, to follow the path it was on. The war finance nexus for me is is I, I think we can relate it to Eisenhower's warnings about the military industrial complex, but it's broader than that. And it precedes that, of course, I'm writing about, um, you know, the, the period following the U.S. Civil War. And so the war finance nexus is really to see in the in the case of the railroad, it's partly what I was describing to you before this dialogue yeah. that's going on. Um, there is this nexus, this combination of the the um, let's say the force of forces of military occupation over indigenous lands and the financialization, the expropriation of those lands um, in in a you know in a in a rapidly developing uh, financial economy. Yeah, through through institutions based in New York. And so for me, this is the the war finance nexus is a is a phrase that I come back to throughout the book. And it's partly a writing strategy, um, you know, to get back to that earlier question you asked about communicating these ideas. Um, and so it's a phrase that I come back to throughout the book in order to remind myself, remind the reader that when I'm talking about imperialism, I'm, I'm really um my interest, my focus here is really drawing our attention to where war meets finance and, yeah. and manifests in these ways. Well, let's move to some of your discussion of different native peoples. You have chapters on Lakotas, Pawnees, and Cheyennes. Um, I thought maybe we could take a few moments on each and maybe you could share some of the key insights because you use them to tell different stories because they, they do have different experiences as they're interacting and interfacing with this war finance nexus. Um, so uh, why don't you why don't we start with the Lakotas? What's what's the key takeaway from their experience in this? Yeah, so I, I think for me this is the different histories is a really important part of what I'm trying to communicate with this book as well. Um, and you know, so the 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 traditional ways, let's say, thinking about the history of the Transcontinental Railroad is a, is a single history, um, and just as the traditional way, let's maybe of thinking about the history of North America is a single history. We could call that westward expansion or uh, manifest destiny. Or the traditional way of thinking about the history of U.S. capitalism, again, is often it's a single history. So I'm wanting to um, disrupt that by providing senses of multiple histories that uh, you know develop out of the experiences, the ongoing experiences, historical developments of, of different indigenous communities, and then also of Chinese workers. So the chapter on Lakotas really focuses on distinction between what I think of as uh, Lakota ways of uh, expansive ways of relating to the lands where they where they live, the, their homelands, these wide open spaces of the plains. Um, and the way I think about it, this expansiveness, which is uh, both it's it's. Uh, the kind, the, the forms of relationships, the types of relationships, the relations between different communities, the relations between Lakotas and neighboring communities. There's, there's a sort of, there's a sense of expansiveness of, 
you know, moving over the land. Uh, and there's a relationship between the land itself and the other forms of life on the land. So in the beginning of the chapter, I trace out um, Lakota movements in relation to buffalo and the buffalo herd and the the ways the buffalo move following uh, grass um, over the cycle of the, of the seasons, um, you know, where there's frost and moving to areas where grass is available, moving to find water over the cycle of seasons or as as the weather changes and Lakota is following following uh, the buffalo and this kind of being the let's say the the concrete you know manifestation of the relationship with the land so this expansiveness that I contrast to the expansion expansionist uh, drive of the United States and so I want to counterpose expansiveness with expansion. Um, and we can think of expansion as economic expansion, you know, the term growth uh, that we're all familiar with, um, westward expansion, um, the expansion of U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, federal, the U.S. Uh, jurisdiction, U.S. territorial control. Um, so expansion in in these different ways. And I want to think about a distinction between expansiveness and expansion. That expansiveness. Um, uh, has room for other ways of living mm-hmm. on that land. Um, and expansion doesn't. Um, expansion is about kind of uh, moving over and subsuming. It's a, it's a form of domination. So what I track out, um, uh, where I end the chapter is, uh, the Fort Laramie Treaty, the Treaty of 1868. And I'm reading at the end of the chapter some, uh, oral histories. Lakota oral histories of the treaty. Yeah, and how they view the treaty terms. Yeah, yeah, how they how they remember, um, you know, the the terms of the treaty, the meaning of the treaty, the discussion of the treaty. This is from the collection that Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz uh-huh. uh, edited back in the seventies. Um, you know, and there's some incredible uh, ideas in these oral histories that um, what Lakotas remember in the treaty was that uh, there was space, you know, one side of the tracks would be Lakota land and Lakotas would have uh, uh, control and autonomy um, to govern that land. And the other side of the tracks would be the United States to do, to govern uh, that, that side of the tracks in this way. So even in, encoded in this historical memory of, the, of that treaty, which is the last treaty the Lakota signed with the U.S., um, you know, there's, there, the, it, it, embed, it embeds uh, this idea of what I think of as, of ex, uh, excuse me, what I think of as expansiveness mm-hmm. um, as compared to, um, you know, these expansionist ideas. Let's say that the U.S. came in and um, uh, defeated, militarily subjugated uh, the Lakotas. It almost sounds, I mean, this, I don't want to kind of fall into this trope, but sometimes people, we talk about Native peoples and we talk about cyclical ways of, of thinking and uh, cyclical worldviews versus, you know, kind of Western European linear thought, uh, linear ways of thinking and knowledge. And but I, I think it kind of appropriately fits in that, this idea of expansiveness versus expansionist. One, it does seem more cyclical and one is much more linear. Yeah, yeah, I haven't thought about it as cyclical. That's that's really interesting. Um, but, you know, you talk about like I mean, kind of like by seasons going, you know, yeah, using yeah. the land and mi- migrating, and uh, but but not not necessarily doing things in cycles, but doing things in a more just a less linear way. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, one way I think of it is, is if I could just briefly, um, mm-hmm. is it's a way of the expansiveness, actually, I think. And, and this maybe relates to the idea of, of the cycles is it's it uh, it actually emerges in relationship to the to the particularities of that place. Um, and this is something I felt when I lived on the South Plains, um, the way the let's say American life is situated on the South Plains could be the way American life is is organized in California or in New Jersey. Um, but the South Plains is a very different place. The, the place itself is very mm-hmm. different than those other places. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's an attentiveness to, to the place that I want to, that I want to bring out. It's, yeah. it's a very material attentiveness to the place. You have to live in, in relationship to and in reaction to an actual place. Whereas, I mean, and again, not to go back to these paintings, I, I sometimes when I'm, doing intros to western history you know we show these paintings that show these rugged mountain landscapes and the plains and then just a clear straight line of the railroad just cut straight through whatever landscape it is right the railroad mm-hmm. just cuts straight through in complete disregard for the actual geography and you know ecology of the land right the railroad doesn't live in that place it doesn't live in reaction to that place it cuts through it or that's how the paintings present it yeah yeah. Uh, well, let's uh, move to the the Pawnee. What about the Pawnee experience? How do you use that story to to, to diversify our understanding of these railroad stories? So, the Pawnee history of the railroad is remembered differently than the Lakota and Cheyenne history, where Pawnees uh, there were groups of men who worked as scouts mm-hmm. for the U.S. Army, and uh, you know that was my entry point in thinking about this. Okay, this is obviously a very different relationship. Did you find these Pawnee scouts as you were working through some of those archives and you thought, oh, here's a, a native story I haven't thought about before? It was something I was uh, – I mean, all of these stories are written in – you know, anyone who's been reading transcontinental railroad histories will know um, these all these communities are written about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I didn't, dig, I didn't dig deep. In fact, part of what I wanted to do is look at the railroad itself but also the – what seem to be these familiar stories that are told in episodic form that are that are kind of jumbled into this larger, single, clear, overarching narrative and try to piece them apart, you know, piece apart these episodes or piece apart these different communities. Pause and, and actually take some time with them. Take some time with them and then also understand, well, what did the railroad mean from the perspective of Pawnee history? Because, okay. um, you know, we, we, we've understood, we've been told a lot about the what – what we think the railroad means, what, what, we're, what we should think the railroad means from the perspective of American history, let's say, yeah. but from the perspective of Pawnee history. So with Pawnees, um, you know, there's a story here that I think is actually not centrally about the scouts, about the men. I think there's a story that's centrally about the work and the relationships of Pawnee women. So some of the first missionaries who went to uh, Pawnee country from New England uh, would send back letters uh, about the, you know, in their perspective, the the degradation of Pawnee women, just the horrible overwork that they had to do. One missionary, I think, compared them to enslaved people and said that, you know, they they work they work harder than slaves. They're treated worse than slaves by their male relatives. Um, just, you know, this very crazy over the top kind of uh, reporting. And uh, there's a lot that's really interesting about those reports. Uh, one is that. Uh, these missionaries were living in villages, uh, which were areas where Pawnee women 
did a lot of the work, um, farming and other kinds of work. And there's few reports of missionaries um, um, out on hunts, which is where men were doing uh, much more of the work of hunting um, mm. and leading communities, uh, villages around. Um, and so there's a gender imbalance in what they're seeing, but they're reporting this, you know, from their perspective, this degradation that's part of what they're seeing as uh, the distance of Pawnees from the Christian values that they're trying to bring. Um, so that that that's kind of some of these initial records. And then these the some of the earliest treaties that the Pawnees sign um, with the United States are treaties of defense um, and treaties of protection um, that the U.S. promises to Pawnees. And as part of this defense and protection, they're promising uh, that they'll um, that the U.S. will disperse funds uh, to uh, introduce farming and to teach Pawnee people how to farm. And so they hire uh, f- uh, farmers from the United States, uh, agency farmers who are paid um, through these treaty, uh, through these annuities and given land um, on the Pawnee reserves. Uh, that's set aside for them to farm, ostensibly to teach Pawnees how to farm. And when they say teach Pawnees how to farm, they mean teach Pawnee men how to farm, Mm. um, because Pawnee women had been farming their lands for generations. And so there are these treaties of defense that they will be defending Pawnees um, from attacks from other communities, Lakotas, Cheyennes, other communities, or from settlers. Um, And then they'll be uh, providing... uh, uh, you know, education uh, in farming, and then also that they would be, be providing schools for Pawnee children. And so Pawnee women were the ones who were, you know, kind of at the heart of overseeing this agricultural production traditionally. And Pawnee grandmothers were, uh, you know, the ones who who really raised their, their grandchildren. So uh, taught them, you know, uh, all the knowledge that they needed to live on the land, how to how to grow uh, food, how to how to be in relation with others, um, ethics, morality, all of this. And so these schools were boarding schools that were uh, kind of on, on the outskirts of these uh, reserve communities. And uh, year by year, the teachers at the school would write about their difficulty in keeping children at the school. And they were asking for authorization to essentially kidnap the yeah. children, hold them hostage yeah. over the course of the year. And this is happening um, alongside just incredibly shocking mortality rates for the children. So there's one year, I think, you know, I think there were uh, the, the, the lead teacher wrote a letter back east um, writing something like, you know, this has been a very healthful year, a bountiful year for the for the school. We've only lost three or four children um, this wow. year. Um, so that was a great year. Um, so. You know, they're they're trying to impose education that is taking the children away from their grandmothers. They're trying to impose uh, commercial agriculture that's taking land and seeds and crops uh, and work away from from women. Um, and what's interesting is that they fail. Uh, the U.S. fails, uh, you know, they, and they're trying to impose this in really violent ways, uh, as I write about in the chapter. Um, extremely violently, um, but they fail. So this starts in the 1830s. But by the 1860s, Pawnee women are farming five times the acreage of these agency farmers. That's to me, that's really incredible yeah. um, that they are able to sustain that, um, sustain that. In fact, not just sustain it, but they actually expanded the the land that they grew. Um, they 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 were growing more um, more food, um, 
more acres in the 1860s than they had been in the 1830s. Hmm. And so uh, I want to understand this history of the scouts, which, you know, that's my entry point into this was reading these railroad histories. And you, you get these colorful stories about uh, Pawnee scouts. And, you know, there's one story which I didn't write about in the book, um, but it appears in a lot of railroad histories about scouts who came in and scared a bunch of uh, politicians and uh, corporate uh, officials who had come from the east and were, were on a tour and they came in and acted as if they were raiding the camp uh-huh. and it was all in good fun uh, uh that was put on by the um uh it was it was a, a show but essentially that was put on by the the local uh construction officials um so you, you get these stories about ponies but you don't really understand you know where did these men come from what was happening in their community in the decades leading up to this railroad and how might they have understood the decision to work for the railroad. What did this make? What sense did this make in the terms of their own history? Mm. Um, yeah. So I wanted to situate that in, in terms of those relationships. If yeah, if that story or other ones of, of scouts are the only samples we have of Pawnee experience, it really it doesn't just it flattens the the Pawnee experience in the world, but it it's it's quite a shallow and and narrow narrow view. Uh, what what about the Cheyenne experience? What story do you tell there? Uh, so with Cheyennes, uh, there's, it's a story of trade. Um, so Cheyennes had moved down, uh, into the plains, uh, responding to an intent, the intensification of colonial, colonial violence, uh, to the east in the lands where they had been living, moved down into the plains and they were a relatively small nation compared to other nations, Lakotas and, um, some of the village nations. Um, but they were able to find, um, you know, they were able to find prosperity on the plains by situating themselves geographically in such a way that they were conduits for an intertribal trade and not just intertribal trade, but also trade to the South, uh, with Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so different Pawnee communities in different areas would specialize in different parts of this trade, horses or, or beaver or buffalo. And this really, um, was the whore, the heart, the core of, of Cheyenne prosperity. Um, and, uh, the railroad, the meaning of the railroad that I understand for Cheyennes is really breaking apart this intertribal trade. Uh, the line comes through and breaks apart the ability to move. Um, there's an assertion with Colorado territory, an assertion of, uh, of, um, restrictions on Cheyenne movements over their lands. Uh, and this was a really, really violent assertions and including, uh, the Sand Creek massacre, which is one yeah. of the most, uh, notorious massacres, uh, in, in this period of U.S. history. And, uh, you know, the, the end game from the perspective of Cheyenne's, the end game of the railroad is isolation. Um, it's, you know, the partition of Cheyenne lands, even of the nation itself into southern and northern uh, branches, um, and the isolation from this rich intertribal trade, which is not just trade, but also, you know, uh, cultural and political life. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's this profound isolation. And this really undercuts the story that's told of U.S. railroads, but also railroads in other colonial contexts. Um, let's say what I would think of as um, more apologist versions of these histories, which 
present them as providing forms of connection, roots of connection, establishing trade where it's presumed trade didn't exist before, um, developing, you know, this new international trade, uh, uh, connecting communities that have been parochially limited or provincially kind of isolated before. And with uh, Cheyenne history, what we see is, is the opposite. You know, you have a community that had already been linked really to an international trade, um, you know, trading, let's say, uh, beads uh, that had come from very specific workshops in Venice, glass beads. Um, so this is an international trade, a global trade. And through the construction of the railroad being cut off from that international trade and being isolated um, you know, through military invasion, through military occupation, being isolated and, uh, you know, being partitioned uh, and then, you know, being rendered dependent in this way. So it's a, it's an inverse than the normal story of connection and integration. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's an inverse of that story of integration. Um, so, um, you know, I think where I end in this chapter and in the book is, you know, if we want to see integration, true integration, then, um, that's part of what is on the table. And if we think about decolonization. We're quickly running out of time, um, and we haven't really touched much at all on Chinese labor, uh, which is another big theme in the book, and the relationship between continental imperialism and capitalism being built by and at the sacrifice of Chinese bodies, literally. How do you bring in the Chinese stories and experiences to kind of deconstruct and help us retell these railroad histories? Yeah, so once again, you know, um, anyone who's read any transcontinental railroad histories knows that um, Chinese labor, Chinese workers provided, you know, they provided the labor for the Western leg of that, of that railroad. And um, it's actually in Asian American history, it's one of the most iconic, uh, if we think of the history of Asians in North America, uh, people from Asia, uh, Chinese railroad labor would be one of the first images that comes to mind. So this is not a hidden history in any way. But in this chapter, I want to ask why, why did the railroad hire Chinese workers? What was it about Chinese workers in particular that made them, um, uh, an attractive workforce, uh, a labor force to seek out? And I find several things. Um, I find that, uh, first of all, the turn to Chinese labor, I think we need to understand in relation to the incredible violence that occurred in California in relation to indigenous peoples um, in the years after the U.S. annexed uh, California. And so violence both in uh, in labor law, so where ind indigenous peoples were, uh, you know, indentured out to large farms and large uh, economic concerns, and also just, uh, just violence uh, just vigilante violence against indigenous communities. Yeah. People would go in and uh, organize what they called hunting parties and go in and just murder, just murder people where they could find them, burn down villages. And this violence, I think, is really um, the historical context to understand the arrival of Chinese people to this area and the attractiveness of them as a, as a workforce. Um, this violence had been organized. It was racial violence and it, it had been organized already. And it's some of this violence then that gets turned against Chinese people in the gold fields, um, some of which I track out in this chapter. 
So there's a context of incredible colonial and racial violence. Um, there's also the availability of Chinese workers. Um, this is something that sets the Central Pacific Railroad, which is the Western leg of the railroad, apart from the Union Pacific Railroad, which they're competing with, the Eastern leg, that um, rather than trying to recruit workers in Eastern North America and somehow bring them all the way across uh, the continent, uh, they can get workers from across the Pacific. Um, and so this becomes a more uh, an easy and a more easily facilitated supply of, of labor. Mm -hmm. There's something here, you know, to understand to me when I first understood this was an incredible way of, of just a corrective against the, the idea of manifest destiny, the idea of North America as, as, as uh, the United States that at this time when the railroad was being built to bring workers from, let's say New York or Hartford or Boston uh, to California you would have to either sail them down to Panama <laughs> and then have them go across and then sail up the Pacific, or you'd have to sail them all the way down uh, around you know, the continent. And that was yeah. very expensive. It was risky. Um, it cost a lot. And by the time the workers arrived, many of them would just go and go off and do other work. So that just wasn't a feasible supply of, of labor for the Central Pacific Railroad. So there was a, a, the, in a really concrete way, China... I'm, I'm sorry, in a really concrete way, California was overseas territory mm, of the yeah. United States. Um, and that's something that the railroad, you know, transforms. But, um, you know, in those kinds of ways, shipping labor, shipping locomotives, shipping rails. Yeah. And there's been a lot of great work recently kind of bringing California and the Pacific Northwest, kind of recasting it in the in, into a Pacific history and kind of this larger Pacific world that falls outside of that national narrative of American westward expansion, right? Um, yes. But for and, and it kind of reintroduces not not necessarily contingency, um, but um, you know when we start with the continental U.S. as our starting point or read backwards through history, we we miss all of the very real important things that were going on that don't necessarily feed into that final outcome as clearly as we think, right? Yeah, yeah, so, I so, agree. So, so we, we read out the Pacific world because, oh, well, until we get there, until, you know, the 1890s when we, you know, and beyond when we, when we then extend our continental imperialism right across the ocean. But that's uh, right. before then we kind of disregard that world. But there's lots of really great, uh, there's a lot of, actually, I have a, a growing list on my, for the podcast <laughs> to, uh, to go farther west out into the Pacific as well. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great work. I mean, one book that um, resonates really strongly with this chapter is Cornell Chang's book yes. on um, Northwest Pacific uh, Connections. Labor. Pacific yeah. Connections. It's a great book, and something he writes about that I write about too is the class formations, the relationships of Chinese merchants um, to mm. Chinese workers, and then to the railroad companies. And so, this is also a distortion. I think reading back and presuming that um, there was. Wanting to presume mutual aid, let's say the principle of mutual aid among Chinese communities uh, in California. And I, d I don't think that was the case in the case of railroad labor, at least. I'm also looking forward. I don't know if you're familiar with Sean Fraga, who finished it, his degree at Princeton recently, but he has a book coming out with Yale called Ocean Fever. Um, a lot about the Northwest, but kind of linking together steam power and industry uh, and, you know, this transcontinental story, but then extending it out into the Pacific. Um, 
Should be. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. Looking forward to that. Uh, I'll be on a panel with him uh, at oh, great. the AHA this January. So. I I'll try to attend it. <laughs> yeah, um, we should probably wrap up. Um, do you have any last words about um, kind of where you're taking either this research or new research uh, in the future? Yeah, so uh, I'm working on a book. The tentative title now is Against Imperialism. Um, and it's taking this idea of the war finance nexus. And uh, I want to think about um, core tactics of imperialism uh, today and core anti-imperialist strategies today. So I'm just beginning that work now, and it's building on the historical insights that I learned from writing Empire's Tracks and also trying to build on and extend some of the ideas as well, the conceptual idea, the concepts in the book as well. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about this book, and my heart is really in this project. That sounds great. Thank you for the book. Thanks for your work, and thanks for spending a little bit of time with us today for the podcast. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your work. All right. Take care, Manu. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Brennan Rensink, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques, you should probably just send them my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the project manager and general editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.